Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Before I introduce our guest speaker, who is with us this morning, if you've been looking around, where is he? He's here. Um, I want to tell you, next Sunday is Peace Sunday here at Grantham Church, and uh, you may have seen, and if you didn't, make sure you check this out on your way uh, out today. At the Welcome Centers, we have the Peace Sunday envelopes for our in-gathering offering. Our theme this year is Pursuing Peace in a World of Conflict, and we will be giving some attention to Ukraine, but I encourage you to check that out. We have a website that tells you a little bit more about that. Hope that you'll plan to be with us. Also, the Peace and Social Justice Commission has just released its new Peace Matters newsletter. We say some about Peace Sunday in there and some other things, helpful resources and things like that. I hope that you'll check both of those out, the Welcome Center and the Info Centers out in the lobby. All right. Alexander Sasha Sutsaroff. So he told me there's a, there's a, a helpful uh, way to say his last name. Just say, suits are off, right? So Sasha, he goes by Sasha, is with us this morning. Sasha was born in 1964 in Moscow, Russia. He is a Russian citizen. He began his career as a skilled violinist, a linguist, and served as a KGB agent from 1985 to 1993. It was during that time that he accepted Jesus, and uh, he has an amazing story that I will let him tell you about. Uh, When he was in the KGB, uh, he had a, a nickname. He was called the Tin Man. If you've seen The Wizard of Oz, yeah. At the end of his KGB days, Sasha then planted a church. He studied at Asbury Theological Seminary in the late 90s, and then at St. Andrews in Scotland, where he got his PhD in Biblical Studies in 2004. Sasha founded the Moscow Evangelical Christian Seminary after leaving the KGB and after holding every position in the school. He is now the president of the seminary, which raises up ministers and church planters throughout Russia. Sasha will tell you that his calling is to replenish what was lost and destroyed some years ago in Russia, which means his aim is to train 200,000 ministers that the KGB executed and plant 40,000 churches that they demolished. You may be wondering, how did we learn uh, about Sasha and invite him here to speak today? Uh, Many of you know John Hawbaker. John, just raise your hand here. John was once a bishop and more recently served in the missions office next door in our denominational headquarters. John had sent out an email to some pastors and said uh, Sasha had come over in January, I believe it was, uh, to do some work for the seminary. And because of the war in Ukraine, he was stuck here. And so we thought, this is actually a divine opportunity to hear from Sasha. Uh, also, as I said, next Sunday is Peace Sunday where we will focus on Ukraine. 
Did I say we're a third way church here? We know this, right? So that the gospel transcends geopolitics. We follow Jesus together, amen? We believe the gospel of the kingdom transcends all other allegiances and loyalties. And I hope this morning is a testimony to you of that. We are thrilled to have Sasha come to speak to us this morning. And then remember, after the service, there'll be a lunch and Q&A uh, with him in the fellowship hall. Before Sasha comes, let's watch this. Ладно. А вообще-то мы собрались сегодня здесь для того, чтобы поговорить о том, что никогда не следует недооценивать важность познания поместных условий. Well, judging by your reaction, I can tell that you probably didn't get a word of what I just said, did you? No. Well, this is, in essence, what I said. I said, never underestimate the importance of local knowledge. And we have just, in fact, learned a, lang a lesson to just how important the local knowledge might be. Because when I was speaking the Russian language, you did not understand me, did you? No. But when I switched to the English language, the language that y'all spoke locally here, you understood me, didn't you? Well, hence the importance of the local knowledge. As long as we have some of the local knowledge in common, say we know a local language, we gain something, right? I mean, you and I, we have just gained this ability to even communicate with each other, correct? Right, now, you still want to have more of the local knowledge in place because, say, depending on your location, again, you can still miscommunicate, even if you use a common local language. Well, take a perfectly English word, football, for example. <laughs> now, you say football here in the States, this is what you mean, right? I mean, what else? The Super Bowl. Now you go to New Zealand and you say football there. Well, guess what? 
New Zealanders by football mean rugby. Now you go to Britain and you say football there, the Brits by football mean soccer. So you have to have more of the local knowledge in place to be able to communicate properly. Correct? Right. Now, some people like us, we gain this ability to communicate with each other when we exploit that concept of the importance of the local knowledge. Some people, like bankers, gain a lot of money on just that concept. Take this HSBC bank, for example. They claim themselves to be the world's local bank. And they shot this uh, video clip that I want you to uh, see. Here it is. A football in the UK isn't the same as a football in the USA. This Texan horns gesture is a celebration. But in Italy, it would be rather an insult. Red here signals bad luck for the player sent off at least. Red here in China is lucky. These envelopes contain money. At HSBC, we never underestimate the importance of local knowledge, particularly when it comes to your money, because what we learn in one country can directly benefit our customers in another. HSBC, the world's local. Well, you heard them saying at HSBC, we never underestimate the importance of local knowledge, particularly when it comes to your money. And that's exactly the concept I want you to keep in mind when you consider giving to a mission. Make sure that the mission is local enough to be able to handle the job locally. But don't you think it was the bank which invented this whole concept about the uh, power of the local knowledge? Because Jesus Christ, the Lord himself, practiced just that approach while on earth in flesh. Well, take a look at this map, if you would. This is the map of the Palestine of the time of Jesus. And you see the Jordan River parting one side from the other side. Now, we all know that Jesus was born in a little town of Bethlehem. Then he was brought to uh, Jerusalem to be presented at the temple. And then um, when um, they uh, fled to Egypt uh, that way, they returned and resided um, in the town of um, Nazareth. Now, when uh, Jesus grew up to the age of about 30, he made a trip to the Jordan River where he was baptized by John. And uh, from there, Jesus went into the uh, wilderness where he was tempted by uh, Satan. Uh, then uh, Jesus went back to the town of uh, Nazareth. And from the town of Nazareth, he made a couple of trips to Nine and Sychar, performed all kinds of miracles. And uh, then uh, Jesus moved to the town of Capernaum. Now, in the town of Capernaum, Jesus called his uh, disciples, and uh, together with the disciples, uh, Jesus was traveling all over the area uh, 
proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Well, eventually, they made it back to the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And that day, says the Bible, when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Let us go over to the other side. Now, we all know that the Bible is the Word of God, right? Right? Right, good, good start. So, whatever's in the Bible has got to have some utmost importance to it, correct? Now, you tell me then, what the utmost importance of this little phrase, let us go over to the other side, is, since the phrase made its way into the Bible. Can you tell? Well, by just looking at the map, you can tell that Jesus, by the age of 30, had not been to the other side as of yet. So it is a totally unknown territory, which is already a big deal, isn't it? I mean, think of it. But if you take a look at the Bible, you realize that there were, in fact, way many more differences between this side and the other side than just that. I mean, take the matter of healing the sick, for example. On Jesus' side, the sick whom Jesus healed were sick, but they were sort of a kind of a peacefully sick. Well, I mean, there was this man with a withered uh, hand, and there was a leper whom Jesus cleansed, and um, there was uh, Simon's mother-in-law who had a fever, and they were sick, but they were not like demon-possessed or anything. Right, now Jesus goes over to the other side, and uh, when Jesus got out of the boat, says the Bible, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he uh, tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Now, wouldn't you say he was kind of different <laughs> on the other side? <laughs> well, take the matter of Jesus' popularity, for example. On Jesus' side, his popularity was growing at all times. I mean, remember, at first, there was no room big enough in the house to hold all the followers of Jesus who wanted to see Jesus performing miracles on the sick. They had to take the roof of the house out to bring yet another rather peaceful paralytic in. Well, eventually, the crowd of followers of Jesus grew so big that uh, there was no square big enough in a town to hold all the followers of Jesus who wanted to hear Jesus preach. Jesus had to move away from the town to preach in the fields. But eventually, the crowd 
of Jesus' followers grew so big that Jesus had to get into a boat so that the crowd would not crush him. Now, Jesus goes over to the other side and uh, sends a legion of demons out of that man into a herd of swine, and he sends the herd into the Sea of Galilee. And the herd drowns. Do you think that made the locals happy with Jesus? <laughs> but of course not. I mean, first of all, they lost everything they had. Second, and I just see the Bible, it's clear. They say they were afraid of what they saw. And so the Bible puts it so mildly, it says, then they began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. Well, I mean, we all know what that meant, right? I mean, they wanted Jesus out of the picture. Get out! That's basically what they told him. But probably the most fascinating difference between this side and the other side lays in the fact that on Jesus' side, when somebody would finally recognize who Jesus was, the Messiah, the Son of God, God himself in flesh, Jesus would always tell that person, please don't tell anyone who I am. My time hasn't come yet. Well, Jesus goes over to the other side and uh, meets such a hostile response on the part of the locals that Jesus, in fact, totally changes his strategy. Look what the Bible has to say about it. As Jesus was getting into the boat to go back to his side, that is, uh, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the region how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed, says the Bible. You see what just happened? Jesus goes over to the other side, meets such a hostile response on the part of the locals that Jesus totally changes his strategy. He, in, in, in effect, delegates the responsibility for spreading the gospel over at the other side to a local man. He tells him, no, 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 you're not coming back with me. You go further. You tell your people what happened. Okay? Now, Jesus does go back to his side and uh, visits a couple of cities along the route and then goes over to the other side once again. And a huge crowd of 5,000 men plus women plus children is there waiting for Jesus for three days. And Jesus feeds them with both the bread of life and the word of life. Now, you tell me, who told them that Jesus was coming again? Well, look no further. The local guy did. He was the only one who knew. So apparently, he was local enough to be able to handle the job beautifully well. And you may say, well, all right. It might work with bankers. 
And it certainly works with Jesus. Mind you, everything works with Jesus. But what does it have to do with us, Graham uh, Church? Well, it does, because frankly, not much has been changed, not in that regard anyway, since the time of Jesus. Yes, they had the Jordan River parting one side from the other side. Well, guess what? You have the Atlantic Ocean parting you from us in the Soviet Union. In fact, whatever country you go to, the country that sends missionaries, there is always a huge divider between them and us in Russia. But people know of the example that Jesus set for us in the Bible with regard to doing mission overseas. Because think of it, Jesus was, in a sense, the first missionary overseas when he went over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, wasn't he? Well, so they followed Jesus' example and they sent missionaries overseas. In fact, I know of a missionary who started in the States and went over to the other side, to the Soviet Union, and of all people there, he got in touch with this crazy guy. This is how I looked some 40 years ago. I was a KGB agent, hard-headed, stiff-necked, um, tough as a nail. I never smiled. Believe me, if you work for the KGB, you would not smile either. There was nothing to smile about with the KGB. Um, I was an agent undercover. This was the only picture ever taken of me in the uniform. Um, and here I am back in Russia, in Moscow. And of course, it was the KGB which executed 40, uh, which demolished 40,000 churches and executed 200,000 missionaries, uh, pastors, deacons, elders, bishops, everybody in Russia. So why, why do you think I even worked for, worked for that nasty crowd? Any guess? Money. You're right on the money. Yes, they pay you five times better than a national average. For you to get a glimpse of just how it feels, Recall whatever you have, and I mean your income, your savings, your pension, IRA, everything. Multiply it by five. The church's budget, multiply it by five. See how it feels. Does it feel good? Yes, it does. That's how I felt. And if I had some moral remorses about what I did for the KGB, I could always come up with a good excuse for doing the wrongs. My best excuse, of course, being, well, I have to provide for my family. And it was my family which uh, set me up uh, one day, big time. My daughter, she was nine uh, years of age. Uh, she came back home from school, and she said that she had made a new friend at school. And my daughter claimed that the father of the new friend was a Christian missionary from the United States of America. And I just looked straight into her eyes, and I said, you better be kidding, girl. Well, think of it my way. She said he was a Christian, and I was, of course, a member of the Communist Party. So I was an atheist, therefore. 
I claimed there was no God. She said that he was a Christian missionary. And I was, of course, a, a member of the, the KGB squad. So in my view, all these missionaries were spies. And I had to take care of those by profession. And she said that he was a Christian missionary from the United States of America. And that, of course, made it even worse because I was a proud product of the uh, Soviet Union. So I thought we needed no help from the United States of America. Thank you very much. So I got so disappointed with my own daughter that I didn't believe her. Instead, I went to her school and I talked with her teacher. Only the teacher confirmed that there was, in fact, a couple from the United States of America. And uh, the teacher also said that uh, the couple was looking for a Russian tutor, which almost devastated me rather. Because as we say back in Russia, up in heavens, everybody is going to speak the Russian language because it takes eternity to learn it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, we laugh at it now. Believe me, I was not at the moment. Because that very moment, I realized they were not tourists, as I had hoped they were, but came to stay. And that, of course, made me even more concerned for the situation. Well, I was a KGB agent. So I decided I would investigate the case to them, reported to my authorities. And I did, by recalling the fact that uh, Natasha, my wife, just happened to be a professional Russian as a second language instructor. She taught all the military officers from third world countries like Guatemala, Cuba, Nicaragua, who were coming to Russia in big numbers to get trained in military operations at the military academia, only to do so, they would have to go through a very rigorous course on the Russian language by immersion, a year-long course too, so that then they could take classes at the military academia in Russian. So my wife did that for a living, and I, of course, utilized that to my advantage. I made my wife teach the missionaries, and that gave me a chance to spy over the family. Now, I was an agent undercover, so I made it look completely innocent. I would just go there to their place, and I would just sit there, pretending I was there to wait until my wife would get through with her lesson, uh, to walk her back home, that is. Um, Whereas I was, of course, there to listen to what they were talking about. And frankly, all they talked about was God. They played it smart. They made my wife use the Bible as their textbook. And all they wanted to learn was how to say the Lord in Russian and how to say here comes Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, in Russian. And how to say, and whosoever believeth in him will not perish, but have everlasting life, in Russian.
And so in about a half a year of just listening to that stuff, I got converted. <laughs> well, at least in my head, I gave God a chance to even exist, which for me, a KGB agent was, in fact, a huge step away from my atheistic realm. Well, the missionaries, they were not just talkative about God. They were also very pushy about God. So some half a year down the road, they pushed me into that praying business and reading the Bible business. Well, yeah, I didn't want to blow my cover, so I yielded. They gave me a copy of the New Testament in Russian, and they made me read the Bible. I didn't have a clue. So I decided I would start it from scratch, which for me was the Gospel of Matthew. Fine. So I read the Gospel of Matthew through, then did the Gospel of Mark, and then progressed to the Gospel of Luke. Only there I stopped because I ran into a portion of the Gospel of Luke, uh, the portion depicting Jesus talking with his disciples. And among other things, Jesus tells them this. He says, if ye, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more so will the Holy Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? And I was just dumbfounded right there, because that very moment I realized that Jesus knew me better than I thought. Because the first part of what Jesus was saying applied to me perfectly well. I mean, I knew I was an evil man, but I also knew how to give good gifts to my child. And that made me think. I was thinking, right, if the first part of what Jesus is saying applies to me this well, then what if the rest of what Jesus is saying applies to me as well? And I followed the guidelines of the scripture, and I simply asked the Father of the Spirit. And bam, I looked up, and I saw the Lord. And I mean, I saw the Lord just as clearly as I'm seeing you now. Only the Lord was standing, and the Lord was putting down the Holy Spirit right inside of me. The Spirit felt like pure gold, only liquid. And that, of course, was my conversion by heart, because in my heart I knew Jesus was God. I saw him. Well, uh, I go back home, and this is how I look. <laughs> well, well, my wife meets me in the door, and she says, what's wrong with you? I said, what's wrong with me, honey? She said, you're smiling. <laughs> you see, I had never smiled before. She married me because her father, a KGB colonel himself, never smiled either. So my wife honestly thought it wasn't even appropriate for a man to ever smile. Well, apparently, Jesus made me smile that day without me realizing that. And of course, my smile gave me away. 
And since I was a baby in Christ, then I didn't find anything more suitable than to tell my wife that I became a Christian now. <laughs> now, she in turn confessed to me that she had become a Christian even earlier than I did. Only she was scared to death to talk about it with her husband, a KGB agent. And so there we were, two complete babies in Christ. Frankly, we had no idea what to do with it, none whatsoever. So we decided we would read a little bit more of the Bible. Because after all, we thought it was the Bible which got us all started on that track. And we did, only to find out that those who accepted Jesus Christ in the Bible would then plant the church. Well, so be it, we said, and we planted the church in Moscow, Russia, in 1991, and I was still a KGB agent undercover. But all we could think of was how to turn the hammer and the sickle into the cross and the crown of Jesus. And so we did. Only then, I had my third conversion. You see, I had three. One by head, one by heart, one by guts. Because one day, I learned by my guts what the call of the Lord on my life was. And the call was to replenish the lost to replenish the lost, which to me, a KGB agent, translated into the need to replenish 200,000 ministers that the KGB executed and plant 40,000 churches that the KGB demolished. Well, I had no idea how to pursue that call. All I knew, though, was that from now on, I could not possibly keep both my faith and my job, because they were in a such a sheer contradiction with each other. So I decided I would quit one or the other. Well, I could not quit my faith, because I saw Jesus Christ with my own eyes. And I could not quit the KGB either, because you don't quit the KGB just like that. In fact, in my days, there were two and two only reasons on the basis of which you could quit the KGB. You could either go cuckoo or drop dead. Die in mission. And frankly, none of the options I quite liked. So I decided I'd wait. And I waited, and I waited, and I waited until an opportunity represented itself. You might actually remember those days. You know, Reagan talking to Gorbachev, uh, tear down this wall, um, glasnost, perestroika. Um, in those days, Russia opened up uh, for businesses uh, from abroad. And a lot of Americans went right in looking for an opportunity to do free enterprise. And Russians just loved it. It felt so fresh, so new that everybody decided he or she in Russia would do free enterprise. So the push from within Russia was so great that even the KGB had to uh, respond to it. And they did by introducing yet the third reason, allowing KGB agents to swap their jobs. The reason being doing free enterprise. Only if you opted for that reason, you had to prove that the free enterprise that you claimed you'd be doing would pay you better. 
than the KGB, which was, of course, a joke. I mean, nobody could beat the KGB on the money. It was rather a trick designed to prevent KGB agents from fleeing. But the Lord worked that out as well. There was a man who accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior at the very church that we planted. So I shared my concern with him, and he, in return, wrote me a nice little letter on the letterhead of his company. I mean, he signed it and everything. It looked official. Basically, the letter was saying that the company was offering me a job much better paid than the KGB. And of course, I knew just the number to quote. So with that letter, I went to the KGB, showed them the letter, and asked if they could beat the deal. Well, they couldn't. So they let me go. And I never told them what I was actually doing. And I never worked for that corporation either. But for some good four years, they were covering me with that letter as if I worked for them. I guess I went undercover once again. <laughs> and I did. Uh, and then, when it became more or less safe, they rather ruthlessly fired me, and the church hired me on the spot. So I made my transition. But the call of the Lord remained the same. And so I decided I would plant the Moscow Evangelical Christian Seminary, because I felt that that way I could do it by the way of multiplication. Instead of planting another church and maybe yet another church in my lifespan, I could plant a seminary and train 30, 60, or maybe 100 church planters simultaneously to fulfill the call. Well, the first thing I realized with the seminary was that there were no teachers of the Bible out there because everybody who knew anything about the Bible in Russia was executed by the KGB. So I decided we would follow Jesus' example with regard to going over to the other side and go somewhere where the knowledge with uh, regard to the Bible was available locally. So I went over to the other side, uh, to the United States, and uh, studied at a seminary in Kentucky, got my degree in uh, divinity, then went over to the other side once again, started teaching my people in the vernacular, then went over to the other side, now to Scotland, got my degree in biblical studies, went over to the other side once again. So I have been traveling over to the other side my whole life in Christ. What I want you to do is to do the same. I want you to follow Jesus' example and go over to the other side to partner with the Moscow Seminary. Now, why would the Moscow Seminary not some other mission out there? Well, because the Moscow Seminary is as local as it gets. It can handle the job locally. And I have hard facts to prove my claim. Take a look at this man, if you would. His name is Reverend Alexei Bychkov. And of course, you know uh, this man, all right? So, Reverend Alexei Bichkov was the first president of the Moscow Seminary. And uh, Billy, in his book, write this. The general secretary of the Protestants in the Soviet Union, the Reverend Alexei Bichkov, had met with me in Hungary in 1977 and since then had worked diligently with the Russian Orthodox Church and the government to gain an invitation for us. Well, notice, Billy 
was a smart man. Billy knew that for him to be successful over at the other side, Billy would have to go and find a local who was local enough to be able to work with both the Russian Orthodox Church and the government to even gain an invitation for Billy to come. But guess what? The first president of the Moscow Seminary happened to be just that local. I mean, take a look at this picture. You see Dr. Graham sitting right in the middle of the table with his headphones on? Well, why headphones? Because by that time, he is in Russia. He needs translation. And look who's sitting right next to him with his funny head. Well, that's the patriarch of the uh, Russian Orthodox Church. But look at who's sitting right next to Billy over at the other side. That's the first president of the Moscow Seminary who happened to be local enough to be able to bring Billy Graham to Russia. And think how much effect that produced. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of Russians accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Well, take a look at this picture, if you would. This is the second president of the uh, Moscow Seminary. Uh, Dr. Kulikov is his name. He was hugely famous for the fact that he was able to plan published this very Christian publication in 2,000 copies, four times a year, even under communists. And he was also the pastor of the only Protestant church that existed in Moscow, a city of nine million people. Well, think of it. Uh, you have a city of nine million people. There is one church, and you are the pastor. Wouldn't you say it would take a little bit of local knowledge to be able to handle a project like that, especially under the communists? But let me tell you something about that man. His father was shot in the head by a KGB agent simply because his father happened to be a pastor. They found him and they killed him. Now think how much faith it took on the part of that man to become a pastor himself. But think how much more faith it took on the part of that city man to publicly bless me to become his successor in the role of the president of the Moscow Seminary. But he did. And so I became the third president of the Moscow uh, Seminary. And of course, I'm young and I'm excited. The problem with me, as this religion report is saying, uh, that the communists tortured and killed 200 thousand clergy in the Soviet Union and destroyed 40,000 churches. Is that a problem? Yes, it is. And so by wearing this red color CCCP, the hammer and the sickle, the big star t-shirt, I'm making two statements here. First, I am a local to the land of Russia. I live there. I know how things work there. And second, I owe to Russia. I owe 200,000 ministers to be trained and 40,000 churches to be planted. And frankly, the only way that I know of uh, to fulfill um, the call of the Lord would be to do it through a seminary, like the Moscow Seminary, because that way you do it by the way of multiplication. You multiply the effort. Now, of course, the Moscow Seminary is a local school in the sense that we don't have students from India or Brazil. 
we only train students who speak the Russian language. And yes, it does include Ukraine. I have 108 Ukrainians on campus and 21 Ukrainian citizens in training, uh, talking peace. Yes. Now, of course, Russia alone is 11 time zones, 6,000 miles by 3,000 miles. So it's quite a piece of the local land. Um, we train both uh, boys and girls, um, and some of them would love to share their vision with you. Here it is. I would like to launch an course and then go to church out of it. This was a course. I would like to launch an course and then go to church out of it. Thanks for coming. God, I'm telling you, the Russian language is the most difficult language on the planet. <laughs> so, we get them all uh, to a class. And we teach them, and then they would plant about 30 churches at any given moment. So I have a good chance to fulfill the call of the Lord on my life within my lifespan. With your help, that is. Now, we would get them all to a class. You know, the seminary has grown to 530 full-time uh, students, and I have 660 on the top of that uh, part-time. And so we would get them all in class, and we would pray together, and then I would teach a class on the Gospels, and um, then uh, we would do foot washing in the corridor, because you cannot be a Christian in theory. You can only be a Christian in practice. And then we would send them off to plant churches throughout Russia from that very building, which we outgrew the year three, that much of a demand for a church planting we had. So I guess we were so used to the idea of having an underground church that when we outgrew the building, instead of building it up, we dug it down. So we gained twice as much space, and we're there in Russia doing it. Uh, only we don't have money to support uh, the needy pastors to go through uh, training. Now, it costs me $1,200 a year to train a minister in Russia. It's a hundred bucks a month. Is that a big sum or not? Well, it depends. Think of it this way. How much do you pay these days to send your kid to a college in the States? And I mean out of state, because the States would be out of state for us Russians, wouldn't that be? Room and board, tuition, insurance, books, Everything. How much? I mean, probably, probably, but probably. But let's say you got lucky and you managed it for twenty-five thousand. Fair? Right. Well, compared to that, twelve hundred that I need in Russia to train a minister is what twenty times less. Is that a deal? Yeah, sure, but the problem that I personally have with the idea of sending somebody to the States to study is not even the money. It's the fact that out of 10 sent to the United, study, uh, United States of America to study at the seminary, only one will come back. You see, they get in and they get comfortable. 
they never come back. So I would much rather have them trained for 20 times less and 10 times more secure, because they ain't gonna go nowhere from Russia. Better still, you know, those guys, they know the most difficult la language on the planet. They know the local culture. They don't need passport. They don't need visa. So they will be by far more effective in reaching out to their own than you will ever be. And here's my point. You know, Jesus went over to the other side and partnered with the local. And it brought forth a huge fruit of 5,000 men plus women plus children will partner with the Moscow family, and you will have your reward 30, 60, 100, or 530 fold. And with that, back to you, Pastor. <laughs>